Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, Matt, you'll get this. People love dogs, especially the millennial generation where owning a pet is more common than having a kid in many U.S. cities. In fact, San Francisco is home to nearly 150,000 dogs, but just 115,000 children. That's according to the American <laughs> Community <laughs> Survey. So, uh, you know, I'm not a pet person, but I know most people are, and it's a big business. Uh, so we're happy to welcome Aaron Easterly. He's the CEO Wait, of Wait, you don't Rover. have a dog? N never had a dog. Never had a pet. Oh, your poor children. I know. That's... I know. That's Trust me. And and they've never been, we've never taken them to Disney. So just failure on so many what? different fronts. Exactly. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Forgive me for not being a pet enthusiast, but talk to us about Rover, uh, what your company is, what you do, and because I know you're going public soon, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so Rover was uh, founded on the premise that all people should deserve uh, the unconditional love of a pet in their lives, whether it be dog or cat. And we want to make it really easy for people to go about their busy, modern, hectic lives and have pets in their lives. So we started a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace where people can find pet sitters and dog walkers um, and anything else they're looking for for their pet care. So how did, how did your business get impacted by the pandemic? Um, well, tale of two uh, parts of the pandemic. Uh, the first part was, was brutal. Uh, people stayed indoors. That They didn't go into work, and they traveled a lot less. And uh, we're largely a travel-related business of what to do with your pets when you leave town and sometimes what to do with your pets when you go into work. So our business was hit pretty hard. Uh, but during that same period of time, um, the adoption uh, rates of pets, uh, the annual growth rate in that uh, roughly quadrupled. Um, so everyone during the pandemic went out and got a dog or a cat. And so it actually increased our addressable market and we gained material share. I think at yeah. the beginning of the pandemic, we were about six and a half times the next biggest player. If you look at the third-party credit card data, sales data, um, when we started our uh, go public via SPAC process, we were roughly 10 times bigger. And if you look at the most recent data, we're something about 16 or 17 times bigger. Um, so weirdly, the pandemic uh, hurt us in the short term, but actually expanded our addressable market, caused us to gain market share, and we've uh, boomed coming out of it, setting records the last several months. So uh, most people know my dog, Steve, is not just my pet. He's my very best friend. <laughs> and uh, he's, you know, been all over with me from New York to Bronxville. Uh, we live in Berlin now. He flew. He, we got him a business class seat. He flew with me on the plane. Did we? We really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, he had the kosher meal and uh, <laughs> he didn't drink any beers because, you know, he had to hold it for eight hours. But. For for me, the hardest thing is getting these services, finding a dog walker when I was single um, or finding someone to watch Steve when I was going places that didn't accept pets. And uh, I've always had to rely on a mishmash of different services uh, and different platforms to find this. Um, I can understand your popularity, but I wonder if, you know, the, the, the popularity of pets at this point is at a peak because of the pandemic, Aaron. Do you think that we're going to see now, you know, the need to own a dog kind of decline? 
Well, I, I think the, if you look at the pet ownership rates in the U.S., they've continued to go up even uh, before the pandemic, and that's a, a multi-decade trend. And the spend per pet continues to go up. Um, I don't think that uh, uh, coming out of the pandemic is going to reverse that. In a lot of ways, I think having a dog is similar to the emotional relationship sometimes people have with kids, which is like once they're in your life, you can't imagine your life without them. And so I, I expect that'll be pretty similar, that most people, uh, once they have uh, their furry ball of joy around them, it'll be tough to imagine life without them. All right. Again, I'm not a pet person. I'm an financial analyst. By the way, someone writes in and says, I didn't realize Paul hated American values. <laughs> <Exactly>. Dogs in <laughs> Disney. Dogs in Disney. <laughs> um, but I am a financial analyst, a stock analyst. So talk to me about your business model. How do you make money in the pet business? Sure. So uh, we take a percentage of the transactions going through Rover, uh, uh, typically a small percentage in the range of 23% on average um, and uh, across all of our service Dude, lines. So we if 23% is a small percentage, I want to be in your business. <laughs> Can you imagine if your stockbroker said, I'll take 23% of every trade? <laughs> Uh, well, small, uh, I'll say a minority of the dollars flowing through. How about that? All right. So give us some some of the metrics. Is it a per – I mean, well, what are the metrics that really drive your business? Yeah, the, the biggest thing for our business is uh, the rate of repeats. The business is typically between 80 and 90% repeat business any given month. Uh, we don't uh, have to do a lot to drive repeat business. We have incredible loyalty, uh, so that generates really strong uh, incremental cash flow dynamics. Uh, so new customer acquisition and the rate of repeat are the big drivers of our business. Um, and then the average order value. Um, so most people, when they travel out of town, maybe go for three, four nights on average. That's a mix of some long trips and some small trips. Um, and on average, uh, overnight care is you know, roughly 30 to $35. Uh, daytime care, like uh, in-home daycare and dog walking is about 20 Is there any plans, I mean, for expansion? I could think of some markets that need a platform like this, for example, um, you know, if you want to adopt a dog, Pet Finder kind of owns that market in America. But if you want to um, find a, a breeder, it's really difficult to uh, sort through all the web pages and understand who's reputable and who's not. I mean, it seems like there's a lot to be done in this space. And obviously, pets is a um, an industry in which people are just willing to dump cash. I mean, I will pay whatever it costs for Steve. <laughs> yeah. uh, same with my dog, London. Um, love her to death, and she owns me. Yeah, one of the neat things about our business is that there are actually relatively few scale tech companies in the pet space. Uh, the pet industry was associated with dot-com access about 20 years ago, so it suffered from... Uh, not as much investment as it could have had. And so when you think about, in the U.S., uh, tech companies that have a direct digital relationship with pet owners in the seven-figure range, there's basically Chewy, Amazon, and Rover. Yeah. And we think that puts us in a really nice position to continue to expand our offerings. When we started, we had just two offerings. Uh, both were overnight care, uh, boarding, which is you take your dog to someone else's home, and house-sitting, someone comes to your home. And when we rolled out our daytime services, dog walking, drop-in visits, got it, uh, in-home daycare. Aaron Easterly, CEO of Rover. Thanks very much. 
All right, let's turn to cybersecurity. Let's turn to ransomware. We've seen a lot of ransomware stories this year. It seems like they're running uh, you know, much more frequently than we've seen in the past. Yeah, exactly. E even Microsoft, right? Exactly. Which is like, uh, if they can't defend <laughs> against a cyber attack, then who can? It's exactly. It's one thing for like the Paramount Film Studio to get hacked. It's another thing for uh, Microsoft. Patrick Heim, co-founder of Syn Ventures, former head of trust and security at Dropbox, and the senior VP, chief trust officer of Salesforce, joins us. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Is it my imagination, or are we seeing more? ransomware stories on corporate America and global, uh, you know, corporations. It's not your imagination. We're absolutely seeing more of this. And I would say a lot of it is tied to just the elegance of the business model. It used to be if you were a cyber criminal in the past and you steal information, you have to find a marketplace and sell it to make money. But nowadays with ransomware, it's very simple. You know, you point and click and encrypt and uh, you can go directly to monetizing by using cryptocurrency. We, you know, we really didn't have ransomware before cryptocurrency became a thing. Although, I mean, you can't really hide um, where the money is going with cryptocurrency. Everyone can see on the public ledger. So it seems pretty dumb in a way. But I to, thought it was supposed to be you can't trace it, but that was never the case. No, you literally can trace it okay. better than anything else in the world. I mean, okay. it's like there, the most traceable. There, there is transparency on the transactions, and there are companies that look at tracing it, but the wallet owners are not known, and there are third-party services called tumblers that move it through many wallets rapidly, splitting transactions to try to anonymize them. So, True, it's like it, shredding it, a paper, it, but it you can publicly. just, if you want to spend the yeah. time, and assume, assuming the CIA and the FBI have you know, hired enough employees, <laughs> you, or, or, or you, if you want to write a program... You know, um, it just takes another couple seconds to do it. It's not, I mean, it is the most easily traceable thing in the world. So clearly cyber uh, cybersecurity isn't threatened by crypto, right? It's, it's that these hackers have figured out a way to get in. Why can they even get into Microsoft? I mean, you were running security at uh, Dropbox. You're in the, in the tech world um, at Salesforce. What? Wh is there anyone who's unhackable? <laughs> Nobody is unhackable. Uh, yeah, at the end of the day, it's a game of statistics. Um, I hate to say it, the larger the company is, the more likely it is that you will find that one mistake that was made, if all you're looking for is one mistake as the bad guy, to find that entry point. And once you have an entry point, you start exploring, extracting information, what's called moving laterally, which is broadening your access across the network to get into more systems until you have enough critical access that you do what you need to do. So it's an iterative process. It takes some time, but uh, frankly, I think, you know, even decades ago, you know, it's, it became common knowledge, at least among the cyber cognoscenti, that there is no such thing as being perfectly secure. It's all about risk management and prioritization. What do you think corporations should do if it's, you know, if you really can't prevent a hack, what should be the strategy for, uh, some of these corporations, as, as I think about kind of trying to make more, their yeah. systems more secure? It's, I would categorize them into two things. Number one is early detection and the ability to like do something about it. When you see that early indication of a breach coming in, um, somebody has like gotten into a system, you need to have a timely response for that after you detect it. And detection, by the way, is very difficult at scale. 
My advice is for the vast majority of companies that can't build 24-7 in-house monitoring um, systems and uh, teams basically outsource the detection part. You want somebody who's watching your network 24-7 who can have early indicators that something is going wrong and block it at that point in time. The second thing is, you know, let's assume that doesn't happen. You need to plan for resilience. So, you know, let's assume they've gotten in, they've moved laterally, they've encrypted a bunch of information or whatnot. You need to have the ability to continue your business. And uh, that means being able to recover your information. Um, a, a lot of the advice I give folks, uh, giving folks, even when I was at Dropbox, is just store things in like a cloud-based service like a Dropbox or a Google Drive or a mm. Microsoft uh, SharePoint. And you know they can decrypt the lo- or they can encrypt and steal the local copy, but they won't be able to get the cloud backup that's there, at least not very effectively. So you know that's one element, but it's obviously much more sophisticated than that. It's really building scenarios and testing against them to make sure that you anticipate that something like this is going to happen to your business and that you can continue operations. What are you investing in? You've, you're starting a VC fund. What are you looking for? <laughs> Uh, we're looking very broadly. You know, my partner Jay and I started uh, Sim Ventures in March. Officially, we raised a two hundred million dollar fund. Uh, been actively investing, made four investments already. Um, it, you know, honestly, you know, we we differentiate because we're former practitioners. Uh, we've been uh, running cybersecurity sort of functions inside of large enterprises for twenty some odd years, and that gives us a slightly different perspective. So, you know, what we invest in is quite frankly, you know, when we look at it from a CISO, a security leader's perspective. We look at stuff and say, yeah, this would have made our jobs much easier. This is this is a company I would have bought as a customer in the past. So we're looking through the perspective of a buyer's lens. And uh, you know, obviously certain things like uh, ransomware is super interesting, but it's a much broader landscape that we look at, uh, really from the lens of people who've been practitioners in the space for quite a long time. All right, Patrick, thanks very much for joining us. Totally fascinating, obviously, totally fascinating topic. Great to hear from Patrick Heim there, co-founder of Sin Ventures. Now, let's talk about investing in, uh, well, I guess, anti-climate change. Investing to stop climate change, I guess, is the way to to put it. Gabriella Herculano is the CEO of iClima, and she joins us um, with her insights on this. And Gabby, the interesting thing is it's not so easy to understand how to do this correctly, right? Because if you want to raise the capital costs of those people or or companies who emit too much carbon, you also end up raising their returns, thereby giving yourself lower returns. Uh, Or I guess if you want to say, I want to take a bet that the government is going to change regulations so that these, you know, carbon neutral investments are going to pay off later. That's also not really moving the needle yourself. So what do you do? Well, um, well, first of all, thank you so much, Paul and Matt, for having me. Uh, What we do is we look at the companies that um, can can really transition us. Uh, move us away from business as usual based on solutions that are um, high on uh, carbon footprint. The, the, the motivation behind all that we do is the idea that the best way to reduce the carbon in the atmosphere is by not emitting in the first place. So what are these solutions and um, how do we provide investors with a direct exposure to that? That's pretty much what we've done. It took us uh, almost two years um, to put this product together. Um, we think that um, what we've done is, is, is provide exposure to a very comprehensive 
set of relevant solutions, and we have a tangible metric that allows us to determine and ascertain and quantify that relevance, which is potential avoided emissions in gigatons of CO2 equivalent per year. So that's a, a mouthful, but it's that idea that there is a delta between the emissions that come from you driving from point A to point B, an internal combustion engine, and taking an electric vehicle, a Tesla, right, for, for that same need. And that delta is the avoidance. And that's where the world needs to go towards. We need to go um, to satisfy our needs, different uh, uh, needs for electricity, needs uh, for transportation, for food, um, uh, all of those relevant ways in terms of uh, uh, mitigating climate change. So, Gabby, one of the issues that we've heard from ESG investors is that, you know, the amount of available data to make informed decisions just really isn't that good. I mean, you know, for t typical financial analysis, you want the income statement, the balance sheet, the cash flow statement. But for ESG, you need a whole bunch of other metrics, and they're not really out there or they're not consistent. H how do you guys deal with that? Well, we, we took uh, matters in our own hands. We, we, we gathered the information ourselves. We're a London-based uh, greenfield tech. And in Europe, we have uh, what is called EU taxonomy. The companies will have to report what is deemed to be products and services that are positive uh, in, in the impact in terms of environmental um, uh, changes and benefits. So that very long list of what these products and services are was a very important um, uh, guideline for us. And what we did was we, we, we have, we developed our own uh, methodology because there was no, nothing remotely close to what we wanted to do in the marketplace. So we vertically integrate, we created our own equity benchmarks. So we triangulated these, these uh, findings with data on what is green revenue and what is also brown revenue. And surprisingly, that data is also not there. Investors that want to negatively screen struggle to get that information. So we looked at the universe that is in line with these products and services that move us away from the business as usual, right, like we talked about. So we quantified the green revenue and the brown revenue, and then we, we quantified and estimated the, the potential avoided emissions uh, which is a, another very relevant um, uh, influence for us is the framework by mission innovation and what constitutes uh, 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 that delta, that potential avoided emission. Mm. So we quantified. That's why it took us two years, because we quantified. We went through all the filings, uh, all the public information for each of the companies. There's about 160 names in our universe, and we quantified that information for each one of them. What's the name of the ETF you're launching later this month? Um, we, we launched last Wednesday. Um, and oh. We launched two. Yeah, yeah. So launching one on New York Stock Exchange is great. Launching two is fantastic. Um, it's called iClima Global Decarbonization Transition Leaders and the iClima Distributed Renewable Energy Transition Leaders, which tells what we think is the most exciting story within clean energy space, which is the, the decentralization of our power systems. So we, we launched both last Wednesday. All right. All right. We'll pay attention to those certainly going forward and certainly ESG investing is a growing, growing uh, part of this marketplace. A lot of investor interest. Gabriela Herculano, CEO of iClimate, joining us again, talking about uh, ESG investing. And uh, as I said, a lot of folks are really interested in this um, in type of investing and they're really pressing the companies that they own, whether it's in their mutual funds and their ETFs, uh, about those companies' uh, 
efforts on ESG, and, and again, there's lots of metrics, uh, lots of grades, even on the Bloomberg terminal under the FA function, uh, where you have financial analysis, you have income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statements, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and Bloomberg also in that function has ESG data. So uh, we're a big part of uh, that data process right there. You know, I'm looking at Tesla, T-S-L-A, U.S. equity, and then I hit BQ to get that Bloomberg quote. It's my favorite quote on the terminal for security because it gives you just a snapshot of everything. And I'm looking at Tesla right here, and it's up 130% on a trailing 12-month basis, but it's down more than 6% here on a year-to-date basis. So it feels to me like a stock that's looking for a catalyst for that next move. And they, we have earnings for the company after the close. And so let's get a preview. And there's no one better than Dan Ives for that preview. Dan Ives is a managing director, equity research at Wedbush Securities. He is a proud alumnus of the Penn State University, Matt. So goes ah. goes against your Buckeyes every year. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, I'm looking at this stock you know, kind of not doing much this year. What do you think is the next catalyst for this name? And will that catalyst come after the close tonight? Yeah, I mean, it's really been about the China story because China is such a linchpin to the Tesla bull thesis. That's going to be about 40% of deliveries going into next year. And China was choppy this quarter in terms of PR issues, safety, that definitely had what I'd say a negative impact on demand. Tonight's really about Musk handholding investors through the rest of the year in terms of the trajectory, what China looks like, and ultimately what deliveries could be. I view it as a positive catalyst. Stocks really underperformed this year after what was a historic year last year. My view, two, three years out in this green tidal wave, this continues being one of the best ways to play it. You know, I look through um, your recommendations, Dan, and you are just crushing it on Every other stock that, that you cover, you, you have a big universe and you're uh, beating your peers almost across the board. The only, I mean, you're still beating your peers on Tesla, but still it's down and you have a $1,000 price target. What did they do wrong or what did they not do that you expected? What was the unexpected move from Tesla? Yeah, and I think when we make these calls you know, over the last, you know, call it 20 plus years, I, I don't like to look at stocks over a quarter or two, right? It's the longer-term thesis. And Fair I think enough. when you look at Tesla, the first part of the thesis played out last year. But so far this year, China's underperformed. And that's why the stock's underperformed. As long as, you know, when you have all these competitors coming in the EV landscape from the traditional, the GM, Ford, VW, to a lot of the startups, that's put a perception, almost an overhang issue, comes down to China. And I think what, what's been a bit surprising is what we saw this quarter. I mean, China was disappointing early on. I think they started to get their sea legs back, have momentum going the second half of the year. And this will go up and down with China. We think up, we view it as more of a speed bump rather than the start of a more structural negative. That's what I think we start to hear tonight. Dan, uh, you mentioned some of the new competitors coming into the marketplace. And again, the big players, the big OEMs that we've been waiting for. How do you think about Tesla going up against the GMs and the VWs of the world as they, and the Mercedes even, you know, we saw some news recently, as they really start to put some serious money behind their EM or EV uh, efforts? Yeah, and why aren't they worth that much? Yeah. I mean, you know, why is yeah. GM worth only $80 billion? Volkswagen, the biggest car maker in the world, which has such illustrious brands as Porsche and Audi, they're only worth $124 billion, and Tesla's worth 650 
It's a great question, and that's why, look, it's our view. And take a step back, and you'll give VW, Ford, and I, especially GM. I believe a lot of these stocks over the coming years get re-rated, not because today they're auto companies in terms of how they're viewed by investors, more and more start to get disruptive technology multiple because of their success in EVs, especially when I look at GM. I think that's a name that could be significantly higher as it gets re-rated on the conversion to EVs. And, and ultimately today, 2% automobiles in the U.S. are electric vehicles. So I don't view this as necessarily zero-sum game. I think you're going to see a lot of beneficiaries test a disproportional beneficiary. But no doubt, you are going to start to see some share gains from the traditional players as part of this green tidal wave. Dan, let's focus a little bit on the income statement here, some boring old uh, P&L stuff. Does Tesla make a profit on an individual unit basis just excluding any kind of credits or anything like that? And if not, when do you expect that to happen? Yeah, not yet. And, and that and that goes to the emotional bull bear thesis. Because of the EV tax credits and because of the, some of those other tailwinds, that's how they show profitability. But as we go into the next few years, we believe they will be profitable as a car company, right? Not just from an EV tax credit perspective. And I think it's always been a forest through the tree type name where you have to sort of look out, especially because of China and where we are, especially on the software piece that you're seeing more and more of these software upgrades, which flows to the bottom line. That's going to be a major catalyst for Tesla to really see the green. And I think a lot of it is the red in the rearview mirror. And that's been something that we've seen really play out over the last few years. If you go back to what's played out in the, in the Tesla thesis. What's your biggest conviction of all the, uh, you've got a lot of outperforms here, and granted, they've all done really well. Uh, which one do you like the best? It's that company out of Cupertino, Apple. <laughs> I mean, that's the one where, when I just think about where we are in the upgrade cycle, what I'll call a super cycle thesis, going into 5G, of services that continues to get re-rated, I mean, Paul, I think a year from now, we're looking at $3 trillion market cap. And that continues to be the one, along with, of course, Microsoft as a core cloud play. It's how you play this tech thesis and really fourth industrial revolution playing out. All right. Well, I, that reminds me, I need to go get a new iPhone, actually. I tell you, Dan, can, he's got these recommendations. He knows how to frame them perfectly. I love the A&R page for him. It <laughs> yeah. just looks uh, A-plus for Dan Eyes from Wedbush Securities. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.